The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. over you simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize you are listening to ACH I'm Andy your host today is Thursday so it's time for the weekly visit of my good friend Dr Peter Hammond I'm going to bring him up right now Peter are you with me yes I am thank you Andrew Thank you, Peter. And folks, we've got another great show for you today that Peter's been working on, and it's called The Real Story of How Britain and Germany Became the Best of Enemies. So where would you like to start us off today, Peter? Well, the real way, Andrew, this is a a review, a summary of Richard Milton's excellent book, Best of Enemies, Britain and Germany, Truth and Lies and True World Wars. Now, I've got the 2007 edition, the first edition of this book. I believe they've had other editions since. But Best of Enemies is absolutely fascinating. When I was uh, in high school in Rhodesia, my history teacher, uh, who was a member of parliament in Rhodesia, Mr. Rhys Davies, in fact, his father had been a member of parliament in Britain during the Second World War and got into trouble with the powers that be and under the security uh, uh, legislation actually got detained during the war uh, for uh, opposing some of uh, Winston Churchill's uh, war aims and uh, without charge and so on. But Mr. Rhys Davies, Member of Parliament, uh, who was also a history teacher at Milton High School, uh, he said, first uh, history lesson I had in high school, beware the victor's version. Wartime propaganda morphs into peacetime textbooks. And uh, it was a very good warning And I think Richard Milton in the book Best of Enemies has done us a great service by pointing out how Britain and Germany had always been the very best of friends over the centuries and had always been allies and before 1914 had never been enemies. And uh, you would think from the way Hollywood and the mass media and uh, many of our school textbooks portray things that Germany and Britain are diametrically opposed enemies and so on. And yet that was not true prior to 1914. And because the propaganda is still with us and because the consequences of this very severe black propaganda uh, continues to affect so many things today and uh, why our countries are in such a state that they are today, I think this uh, book is extremely helpful. So uh, just to give some of the background that's given by Milton in in, uh, Britain and Germany, the best of enemies, even before February 1840, when Queen Victoria married Prince Albert, Britain and Germany enjoyed the closest of ties in friendship, marriage, faith and culture. In fact, if you've seen the young Victoria film, which is a very good film and I enjoy it, and 
it's a favorite in our family. But the uh, <clears throat> attempt to portray Prince Albert as, as stumbling and halting English to try and communicate with v Queen Victoria is actually a bit anachronistic because we're informed in this book how Queen Victoria and Prince Albert communicated with one another in fluent German in Buckingham Palace, raised their children speaking German as one of their two main languages. And so uh, this whole idea that uh, they had trouble communicating because Prince Albert was struggling in English is, is actually just uh, uh, some kind of uh, film uh, gimmick, but it's, it's not historical. Historically, British and German soldiers were the staunchest of allies prior to 1914. The Great Battle of Waterloo in 1815 was won by an alliance of British and German troops under the Duke of Wellington and Marshal Blücher against their traditional enemies, the French. My father, who fought all six years Second World War in the Eighth Army, uh, often made the comment that he couldn't believe we ended up fighting for the French twice. Uh, to him, our traditional enemies always were the French and not the Germans, and he was a little... Um, bemused and uh, so on about the fact that Britain had ended up fighting its f friends against its enemies, uh, on the side of its enemies, uh, the, who he identified as, as the French primarily. And that's historically the way it was. The Battle of Waterloo was the British troops had to hold the line until the German and Prussian troops under Marshal Blücher uh, managed to uh, reach them in time to win the battle. And it was, it was uh, an allied attempt. Now, Queen Victoria herself was a descendant of Hanoverian kings from Hanover, and she is the daughter of a princess of Saxony. She couldn't have been more German herself, and Prince Albert of Saxony was, of course, thoroughly German. So Queen Victoria and Prince Albert actually spoke German to one another and to their children in Buckingham Palace in London quite comfortably. Both the Angles and the Saxons, after whom the Anglo-Saxons are named, came from Germany. It was Prince Albert who introduced the German tradition of Christmas trees to England. The cultural exchange from Germany to England during the 19th century was unrivaled. And German composers were the most highly esteemed throughout the British Isles. Beethoven, Bach, Handel, Mendelssohn, Schubert, Schumann, Brahms, Haydn, Offenbach, Wagner. Uh, these were the most popular composers in Britain and they were all German. Germans read Sherlock Holmes and were enthusiastic Gilbert and Sullivan fans. Uh, cricket was introduced to Germany as early as 1850. By 1914, there were at least 14 cricket teams in Berlin alone. Lawn tennis was introduced from Germany, from England to Germany by the 1890s, and the Berlin Wannsee Golf Club opened in 1895. So there's tremendous cultural exchange between Britain and Germany, particularly in the 19th century. And from 1851, many British children spent the day attending a new type of elementary school imported from Germany, the kindergarten. Frederick Froebel had introduced the kindergarten system to Germany in 1837, and it came to Britain by 1851. Even the spelling of kindergarten, it, it shows its German origins. Thomas Cook's first foreign tourism packages were to Germany, to Austria and to Switzerland. And by the early 1900s, the English were emulating their German cousins by taking part in hiking tours with such German innovations as rucksacks, elfin socks, and Tyrolean hats, all of which were, of course, thoroughly German, Swiss, and Austrian. The fashions for dressing children in sailor suits originated in the 1840s when Queen Victoria began dressing her sons in naval costumes. And this soon spread throughout all the royal families in Europe, including the Tsar's children who were 
famously also dressed in naval outfits. The great exhibition in Hyde Park in 1851 was organized by Prince Albert. And not only were British industrial products on display, but there were more than 1,500 exhibitors from Germany at the great exhibition in Hyde Park, 1851. Throughout the 1800s, a torrent of German inventions and manufactured goods flowed into Britain. Germany was Britain's main source of imports, and Germany was the most receptive overseas market for English goods. So British homes were filled with German products like Dresden, China, Leica, and Falklander cameras, and Zeiss binoculars, and Adler and Olympia typewriters, and fluorescent lamps, and Geiger counters, radio waves, and x-rays were German discoveries which dominated the British market. And over 100,000 British children went to bed with teddy bears made by Steiff after having played with their German-made train sets or German-made China dolls. Germany provided British manufacturers with their most profitable market. Almost every German home used Oxford marmalade, English mustard, golden syrup, Sheffield cutlery, Wedgwood china. Many of the trains and steamships in Germany were built in Britain. And Germany dominated the optical market and industry, and it was particularly the Austrian Johann Voigtlander, whose cameras and lenses dominated the market. Voigtlander was the one who introduced the English fashion of wearing monocles to Austria and Germany. Many people have thought wearing a monocle is the archetype Prussian uh, image that they used in the movies in particular, but of course it was a very English thing. Just think of uh, Chamberlain, the uh, 19th century English uh, secretary uh, of uh, the colonies. And so uh, the monocles was more British fashion, which the Germans and Austrians adopted than the other way around. Many German names are so familiar in Britain, they're almost considered indigenous, like Nivea face cream, Osram light bulbs, Agfa film, aspirin from Bayer, Parasol washing powder, AEG, which is short for Allgemeinde Elektricitats Gesellschaft, uh, that's AG, uh, or BASF, which is short for Baden Online Soda Factory. Uh, Emil Berliner invented the gramophone in 1887 and the microphone in 1885, and that's the Berliners, obviously German. Uh, then you get diesel. Rudolf Diesel invented the engine that bears his name, and it was diesel engines which powered the Royal Navy. Uh, in the 1850s, William Siemens opened the British branch of the Siemens Electrical Engineering Company, and Siemens manufactured and laid thousands of miles of undersea telegraph and telephone cables that made Britain the hub of a global empire and London the center of international finances. Uh, that was Siemens Electrical Engineering. And Julius Reuter set up an office in the stock exchange and founded the organization that added news and information to this cable network, Reuters. At the first international chess tournament organized in London, 1851, part of the Great Exhibition, the British were shocked when their top chess champion, Houghton Stoughton, uh, was beaten by the German competitor, Adolf Anderson. Now, it's Howard Stoughton whose name was given to the design of the modern chess set. Many noted that the seeds of the later rivalry between Great Britain and Germany were sown in 1851 when British manufacturers realized what major competition they had from German industry and when their chess champion could be beaten. However, nobody in the 19th century could have ever predicted war between Britain and Germany. 
Queen Victoria and Prince Albert spoke German almost exclusively to one another in private. And Princess Victoria, the daughter of the English Queen, was the wife of Crown Prince Frederick Willem of Germany. And as late as December 1898, when war between Britain and France was a distinct possibility, Kaiser Willem II assured the British ambassador that if ever England were in any serious danger, Germany would certainly come to her assistance. Europe is not conceivable without England, he said. In 1890, an English newspaper interviewed Chancellor Bismarck, who noted that war between England and Germany was wildly improbable. And the British Foreign Secretary Sir Edward Grey in 1912 predicted that the differences between Germany and Britain could never assume dangerous proportions. And as that's the same Sir Edward Grey who spoke about the lights being put out all over Europe when war began in August 1914, well, just two years before he said it could never be dangerous proportions with any differences between Britain and Germany. Even as late as August 1914, the British ambassador to Berlin, Sir Edward Goshen, described Britain's relationships with Germany as more friendly and cordial than they'd been in years. And this was so also with the Navy, the Royal Navy and the uh, German Navy, the Kriegsmarine, were meeting for um, in the Baltic Sea uh, with all kinds of activities, uh, joint operations, uh, at the very time when the Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in uh, June uh, 1914. And when they parted, the Serampo flag message was, friends today, friends forever. And uh, that was the way that they saw things at the time. It, it just was inconceivable that they could ever become en en enemies. So <clears throat> politically, diplomatically, militarily, Britain was closer to Germany than to any other country in the world. Throughout the 19th century, war between Britain and Germany was inconceivable. Throughout the 19th century, the British and German people cherished their special relationship based on common heritage, common kinship, common blood, and sharing the Protestant faith. When you use the word special relationship in the 20th century, that's being used to describe American and Great Britain. But in the 19th century, if you spoke about a special relationship, people would have immediately thought of Germany and Great Britain. But tragically, generations of friendship and mutual respect was shattered by an 18-year-old Bosnian Serb Marxist in Sarajevo as he shot and assassinated the heir to the Austrian throne, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, and his wife, Sophie, on their 10th wedding anniversary. So how did a terrorist act in Sarajevo <clears throat> sever the special relationship between Britain and Germany that had endured for centuries. I mean, Britain and Germany had been allies in the Seven Years' War, the Thirty Years' War, and so on, uh, fighting against France and Austria and all the others, and it, Germany was always the ally. So it's understandable that Austria was going to do something about the troublesome neighbor, Serbia, who was actually a rogue state sponsoring and supporting terrorism and had been behind many armed revolutionaries that armed and trained revolutionaries, assassins, and terrorists who had even assassinated the uh, Empress of, uh, which was the Emperor of Franz Ferdinand's um, <clears throat> the wife the, uh, of uh, the Habsburg Emperor of Austria. His wife had actually been murdered by one of these assassins, one of these uh, anarchists, as they called the communists at that stage. So there'd been governors assassinated, there'd been 
bombs thrown even at Queen Victoria's granddaughter's wedding in Spain. Um, so these, these uh, terrorists armed and support from Serbia were causing trouble all over Europe. And Serbia is known as a rogue state, a terror sponsoring state. And uh, plainly, the Austria-Hungarian Empire was going to do something about their troublesome terrorist sponsoring neighbor. However, as Austria gave an ultimatum to Serbia, which the British government at the time described as eminently reasonable, the Russian Empire mobilized against Austria and guaranteed full support to Serbia. And this led to Germany mobilizing in support of its Austrian ally against Russia. Now, the French were allied to Russia and were spoiling for a fight to reverse the humiliating military defeat they suffered when they lost the Clairvaux in Germany in 1870. Uh, and that was, of course, with uh, Emperor Louis Napoleon uh, III. And strangely, King Edward VII had allied Britain to France and Russia, probably out of spite for hardworking evangelical parents, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. So Britain ended up on the side of its traditional enemies, France and Russia, against its traditionally closest ally, Germany, which is absolutely bizarre. So on the 4th of August, 1914, as Europe began mobilizing for the most disastrous war in history, Britain's first act of war was not military, but it was aimed at communication. The steam cable vessel, Telconia, was anchored in the North Sea under cover of darkness to trawl for cables on the seabed. And by dawn, her engineers had located and cut all five German cables to France, Spain, Tenerife, and the two cables to New York. The severing of these transatlantic links heralded the beginning of a war of words. The deep wounds inflicted by the propaganda war would last far beyond the end of the First World War. And it created a climate of mistrust and suspicion that has poisoned Anglo-German relationships for generations. Cutting the transatlantic cables also signaled the start of a new kind of war, the propaganda war. It cut the ties that had bound Britain and Germany closer than any two nations on earth for over 100 years. The torrent of lies and deceit unleashed by clandestine public relations campaigns continues to inspire hate and prejudice, especially through Hollywood films to this day. And under Lloyd George, a secret British propaganda agency was set up which secretly enlisted the active support of virtually every great British writer then alive, including Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who had created, of course, uh, the inspector um, uh, Shakespeare, uh, no, um, the inspector, uh, goodness me, the most famous of all the uh, detectives, Arthur Condor created. Oh, Sherlock Holmes, Holmes uh, Peter. Sherlock Holmes. Why did I blank out on that one? Sherlock Holmes. Uh, there's Arnold Bennett, John Buchan, uh, John uh, Macefield, G.K. Chesterton, Thomas Hardy, Rudyard Kipling, probably the most enthusiastic propagandist of them all, and H.G. Wells. All of these British writers were secretly enlisted into the British propaganda war. Pens were dipped in the poison of lies and acid of hate and directed against their recent closest friends in Germany. British military intelligence not only mobilized the literary big guns for its propaganda campaigns, but manufactured the most outrageous atrocity stories to attribute to their previous friends and new enemies. And the legend and the legacies of bitterness and disillusionment created by this clandestine propaganda war has had far-reaching 
devastating consequences for world history throughout the 20th century, and it's still with us, and it's still creating problems. David Lloyd George was the Chancellor of the Exchequer at the beginning of the war. He was one of the first politicians to understand how the media game was played, and Lloyd George shamelessly exploited the press for personal and professional advantage. In 1911, Lloyd George had championed the National Insurance Act, which was an important foundational stone of the welfare state. And to push this highly controversial act through against strong resistance, Lloyd George sponsored media manipulation to mobilize public opinion, as he called it. And it was possibly the first time that a modern democratically elected government had spent public money setting up an organization specifically to orchestrate uh, or to manipulate public opinion. And the National Insurance Commission set up by Lloyd George was the first government public relations machine producing newspaper articles, pamphlets, and organizing nationwide lectures in favor of legislation, all of which seems exactly the opposite of uh, a free society with people having free opinions, because this is now uh, a very devious way of using the media to manipulate public opinion. Lloyd George's appointed leader of this commission was a fellow liberal member of parliament and a journalist, Charles Masterman. And so it was in 1914 that Lloyd George turned again to Charles Masterman to set up the British War Propaganda Bureau based in Wellington House, London. So on the 2nd of September, Masterman invited Britain's top literary talent to a secret meeting at Wellington House. And authors were requested to produce books, articles and pamphlets promoting British war aims. The Bureau would encourage to have these books published through normal commercial publishing houses, Oxford University Press, Thomas Nelson, Hodden, Stoughton, Macmillan, and so on, and guaranteed their financial success because the government would actually buy up a lot of their books and uh, use them for distribution to uh, neutrals and so on. So these well-known authors were also requested to sign a full-page advertisement, in fact, several advertisements followed, to appear in New York newspapers denouncing Germany and appealing for American support. And all of these would be secretly financed by the government through Wellington House. So these are well-known authors, and of course, people who like them uh, would be more inclined to accept what they said uh, on a political position. And particularly targeting the neutral countries like uh, the United States, this was seen as, as uh, very strategic. And this clandestine disinformation operation was so effective it was only by 1935 that even the existence of the War Propaganda Bureau even became known. And John Buckham, author of the espionage tales such as The 39 Steps, which has had how many film recreations, and, and he is also director of Thomas Nelson Publishing Houses. John Buckham ended up as director of the Ministry of Information, as they called it. So on the 11th of September 1914, Masterman, held a meeting with all the editors of leading newspapers and formed the Neutral Press Committee, <laughs> which, of course, they weren't neutral, but that's the name given to it. The Neutral Press Committee to ensure that all British newspapers towed the line, advanced British war aims, and disseminated British propaganda overseas, which included fake news, disinformation, um, both to conceal real war aims and goals and plans and so on, and to cover up failures on their side and, and of course, to invent uh, atrocity stories about the enemy. So in May 1915, the British War Propaganda Bureau produced the notorious report on the alleged German outrages. And this was reported to be 
independent and an objective official review under the chairmanship of Viscount Bryce, who was the former British ambassador to the United States. Of course, it was nothing of the sort. It was nothing vaguely uh, independent or objective. This was a piece of black propaganda loaded with fiction, with totally made up atrocities, outrageous lies, yet many of its fictitious claims, such as the bayoneting of babies, raping of nuns, chopping off of children's hands and feet in Belgium, actually ended up in museum exhibits and in school history textbooks. And I remember reading these lies. And these were all repudiated later in Parliament, even by Lloyd George, who said, you know, we're sorry, uh, we did lie about these things, but, you know, it was wartime. But it's still in many textbooks. The British War Propaganda Bureau produced over 1,100 pamphlets and vast numbers of books, including Two Arms by Arthur Conan Doyle, The Barbarism in Berlin by G.K. Chesterton, The New Army by Rudyard Kipling, The Two Maps of Europe by Hilaire Belloc, Liberty, a Statement on the British Case and War Scenes on the Western Front by Arnold Bennett, Is England Apathetic by Gilbert Parker, Gallipoli and the Old Front Line by John Massafield, a sheaf and another sheaf by John Galsworthy and H.G. Wells produced The Research Magnificent and Mr. Brittling Sees It Through. And those are just some of them. Most memorably, H.G. Wells produced The War That Will End War. And John Buchan produced flag-waving propaganda, The Battle of Jutland and The Battle of the Somme, which had little to do with the actual facts of those events. Buchan's Greatest hit was his espionage adventure, The 39 Steps. And this book helped generate spy mania throughout Britain, and Buchan followed it up in 1916 with Green Mantle, another one of these flag-waving um, hysteria, German spy behind every bush type of thing. An example of the distortions published by Buchan was his illustrated history of the war published in 1915, which claimed that the Germans were on the verge of defeat, having lost 1.3 million soldiers compared to less than 100,000 British lives, which is so wildly out of uh, all touch with reality. And uh, the Germans were by no means at the edge of defeat. In fact, they had up to that stage done most of the, the victories. So Arthur Conan Doyle brought the world's most famous detective out of retirement to turn Sherlock Holmes's detective deductive powers into trapping von Bork, a fictitious German spy in England. And because the press was in on the deception, the public and most members of the British government remained in the dark and accepted the ever-growing torrent of anti-German literature's spontaneous expressions of journalists, authors, and historians, not knowing how coordinated and uh, uh, what a uh, symphony this was, uh, completely under direction of the British propaganda ministry. So in response, the German Foreign Office set up and funded the Central Office for Foreign Services under the direction of Matthias Erzberger, the leader of the Catholic Center Party. And the Foreign Service Office of Germany was primarily concerned with collecting and studying printed works from abroad. And later they published German newspapers and magazines for distribution abroad, including the Continental Times, Kriegschronik or War Chronicle, and the Great War in Pictures. Every photograph was captioned in up to six languages, including English, and the weekly illustrated war career. The German Foreign Service Office was especially keen on publishing photographs because visual propaganda needed no translation and the pictures could touch emotions directly and present evidence of their case. So 
Later in the war, they would also distribute films. In Berlin, the German writers and journalists and artists were encouraged to extol German courage, self-sacrifice and military prowess and to expose English treachery, cowardice and failure. And so it was set up. Propaganda machines in Britain, propaganda machines in Germany aimed at demoralizing the enemy armed forces and civilian populations by damaging press reports and by dropping leaflets from the air. And aside from bolstering their own population with positive propaganda, the Bureau targeted the enemy population for negative propaganda. So anti-German pamphlets, leaflets and newspapers were distributed in Germany and Austria. Aircraft and balloons dropped propaganda leaflets over enemy lines. Propaganda was also directly posted to selected addresses through enemy mails. German and Austrian postage stamps were forged and posting through neutral countries. They targeted people to break down the morale of people whose husbands were away at the front and they would be uh, sending in directly to people's mailboxes um, forged letters that would uh, break down the morale of their people at home. Along with the British Royal Navy's starvation blockade of Germany came a moral blockade through propaganda in neutral countries. And German General Erich Ludendorff wrote in his post-war memoirs, we were hypnotized by the enemy propaganda as a rabbit is by state. It was exceptionally clever. It was conceived on a grand scale. It worked by strong mass suggestion. It kept in the closest touch with the military situation and was unscrupulous as to the means it used. And Secondly, of course, the aims were to inspire their own civilian populations, to gain moral support for the war, to inspire young men to enlist and fight, and to encourage greater industrial and agricultural production. But they didn't feel any need to stick to the truth. There was a lot of ideas of the end justifies the means and lies were perfectly acceptable. Now, the third goal of these propaganda departments was to gain the support of neutral countries. In this respect, both Britain and Germany had the same primary propaganda target, the United States of America. Germany's goal was to persuade the United States to remain neutral, and Britain's goal was to persuade the United States to get militarily involved on the Allied side. Now, as the militaries were locked in stalemate on the Western Front, literally dug in in trench warfare, the propaganda war became decisive. One of the first rules that Masterman enforced on British reporters was that there's to be absolutely no photographs published of the war, except those taken by official photographers allowed and appointed by the Bureau. There were never to be any pictures of dead soldiers published, at least not of their own. And realizing that unrestricted photography of the war could be seriously dangerous to civilian morale, the prohibition of cameras was enforced very seriously. No officer or soldier was permitted to be in possession of a camera. And technically, owning a camera or using a camera in operational area could be punishable by death by firing squad, um, according to British law. But anyone visiting World War I museums like Hill 60 near Ypres, which I've done, can see hundreds of contemporary photographs which British soldiers risk-taking that did survive the war. So obviously not everyone adhered to that rule. In 1916, Masterman recruited the talented artist Muirhead Bone to paint more idealized depictions of the war. And so these pencil and charcoal sketches were so successful that some 90 war artists were employed, including William Orphan and William Rothenstein. And of course, the nice thing about paintings is you can leave out all the horrible things and reality and 
produce far more idealized depictions. The most memorable propaganda image from World War I, though, which we've all seen, is that of General Kitchener pointing his finger directly at you, saying, your country wants you. But actually, that was very ineffective. Voluntary recruitment fell so far below the levels needed for 1915 that the British government was obligated to introduce conscription. So the most famous propaganda image was a complete failure, effectively. Uh, so your country, once you did not convince most of the people they wanted, and so they had to just uh, go from volunteers to conscription. But the primary target for British propaganda, the United States was successfully recruited to join the Allied war effort. And from the very beginning, Britain managed to persuade America to break their own neutrality laws to send vast amounts of what amounted to contraband military materials, uh, vast amounts of weapons, ammunition, uh, through even on civilian ships like the Lusitania, which were carrying routinely um, many hundreds of tons of explosives and millions of rounds of ammunition and tens of thousands of shells and so on and so forth, uh, shrapnel. And uh, they loaded down the civilian ships, with, uh, which is completely in violation of the Hague Rules of Warfare uh, and the neutrality laws of the United States Congress. Uh, but this was done with the complete knowledge of uh, Woodrow Wilson, uh, who was uh, completely on the side of, of the British and French war effort from the very beginning. So the primary goal and of getting the United States recruited to join the Allied war efforts was so effective that even when the United States government had declared war on Germany, the general perception amongst the Americans was that all America needed to provide was food, weapons, and ammunition for the already victorious English, French, and Russian armies. And it came as a great shock to the Senate majority Democratic leader that the United States would actually have to send an army to Europe. Thomas Fleming observed, leading newspapers such as the New York Tribune and the Los Angeles Times assured their readers that no American army was needed in Europe because everyone thought the war was as good as won, as the virtually victorious English, French and Russians needed from the United States was only large amounts of food, weapons and ammunition paid for by American loans. And Fleming attributed the state of abject ignorance on the effectiveness of the British War Propaganda Bureau, because with the cutting of the German telegraph cables and the effect of censorship, American newsmen only knew of the war from the British and the French side. And as early as 1916, an American congressman had inserted into the congressional record a complaint that the United States had been deluged with stories which were puffing British and French battlefield superiority totally out of touch with reality. And speakers by the hundreds had toured America uh, telling the same lies. British propaganda sought to seize the moral high ground by accusing their German enemy of atrocious behavior. And although Belgium had military alliances with France and Britain, uh, the Germans were accused of violating Belgian neutrality. And Germany points out that the Belgians chose to put themselves on the side of France, and Belgium was one great fortified camp against Germany, which it was. And in fact, the British and French military had begun pouring into Belgium on the 30th of July, well before Germany mobilized and responded. So even to this day, though, many people still think of Belgium as being neutral and uh, Germany's attack on Belgium being a great crime, even though Britain had every intention of blockading Belgium uh, and invading Belgium uh, if Germany had not done so first. There could have been no one in Britain and very few 
in the United States who did not hear or read of the British Propaganda Bureau's fabrications of German soldiers killing women and children indiscriminately, raping nuns, cutting of hands and feet of children, bayoneting babies, all of which was complete and utter lies, nonsense and black propaganda cooked up in Wellington House. The fact is the German army of 1914 was the most disciplined army in the world. And despite many challenges, including one from famous American lawyer Clarence Darrow, who offered a thousand US dollars to anyone who could substantiate one of these atrocities, not one documented case could ever be shown. And yet the Propaganda Bureau pro processed these urban myths into permanent historic fact for one of the most sophisticated, ruthless propaganda machines ever assembled. And of course, aided by Hollywood indeed. The notorious report on the alleged German outrages was published simultaneously in 30 languages. Uh, how could that have been spontaneous? In May 1915, 30 languages suddenly published worldwide, and although completely discredited after the war, it was widely accepted at the time in Britain, America, and some neutral countries. Margaret Cole wrote of the war hysteria and a barrage of untrue, idiotic, atrocity stories about children with their hands cut off by Germans, priests tied upside down to the clappers of their own bells, dead bodies being boiled down for fat and the like. And Irvin Cobb, an American reporter for the Hearst Press, reported that while many had stories to tell of German atrocities in Belgium, he wasn't able to find a single eyewitness through the whole war or afterwards. It had always happened to someone else in another town. Robert Graves, a young British officer on the Western Front, wrote the book, Goodbye to All That. Propaganda reports, he said, of atrocities, it was agreed by all the officers, was ridiculous. We no longer believed the highly coloured accounts of German atrocities in Belgium. So that's from a frontline British officer on the Western Front, Robert Graves, Goodbye to All That. And he really dismissed it as uh, uh, absolutely atrocious and uh, in bad taste. Historian A.J.P. Taylor pointed out that by Germany being forced to fight a war on two fronts, with Russia in the east and Britain and France in the west, the German rail network was compelled to mobilize millions of soldiers necessary to neutralize these threats on both extremes of the east and western front, according to very rigid timetables. And the German government had requested the Belgian government to allow passage for the German military to confront the French mobilization against it, which was already even pouring into Belgium. And as German Chancellor Bethmann Holweg explained to the British ambassador, this is a matter of life and death to Germany. Germany didn't have a channel around it. Germany didn't have an ocean uh, between it like America did. Uh, Germany was faced with hostile neighbors on both its flanks, and uh, its very survival was at stake. And the German army was not an expeditionary force crossing the channel to some other landmass. They were fighting for their life against the two greatest armies in the world at the time. The French and Russian armies were not just large in size, uh, but uh, historically, uh, they were known, the French were meant to be the military superpower in the world at that time. And those who had first-hand knowledge rejected the propaganda entirely. The better educated sections of Britain regarded the propaganda with suspicion. But the uninformed majority of the public gullibly assumed that the reports they were being fed were true and accurate. And as a result of this propaganda war of words, Germany came to be perceived by the newspaper reading public in France, Britain and America as militaristic, brutal, bestial barbarians. In 1917, Masterman published a corpse conversion factory, 
which claimed that the Germans were loading the bodies of dead soldiers onto railway carriages to be transported to a factory where they were to be melted down for soap. Well, historians were later able to trace the story back to its source, which was that the bodies of dead horses were being processed. The Times of London then twisted the story to involve human corpses instead of horse. In 1928, the British Member of Parliament, Arthur Ponsby, published Falsehood in Wartime. In 200 pages, he detailed examples of blatant lies, black propaganda, published by the British government departments and newspapers between 1940 and 1918. And one of the most memorable examples exposed by Ponsby tracked down the source of these atrocity stories, including the fate of priests in Antwerp. So November 1914, the Cologne Daily News reported, when the fall of Antwerp became known, the church bells were rung. So this was referring to the celebration of the German victory. Now, this item was picked up by the French Le Matin with a deliberate distortion claim that, according to the Cologne Daily News, the clergy at Antwerp were compelled to ring the church bells when the fortress was taken. The Times of London then picked up the story and embellished it further. According to what Le Matin has heard from Cologne by Paris, the unfortunate Belgian priests who refused to ring the church bells when Antwerp was taken had been driven away from their places. The Italian Cordero della Serra then quoted the Times reporting, the unfortunate Belgian priests who refused to ring the church bells when Antwerp was taken had been sentenced to hard labor. Le Matin in France then report that according to Italian newspaper, it is confirmed that the barbaric conquerors of Antwerp punished the unfortunate Belgian priests for their historic refusal to ring the church bells by hanging them upside down as live clappers to the bells with their heads down. So this farcical game of Chinese whispers as newspaper editors in France and Italy and England all sought to outdo one another with more bizarre one-upmanship is just symptomatic of the whole game. One of the most vicious posters of World War I shows a German nurse standing beside a wounded British soldier lying on his poor makeshift sickbed pleading for water and according to the caption, wounded and a prisoner, our soldier cries for water. A German sister pours it on the ground before his eyes. There's no woman in Britain who would do it. There's no woman who in Britain who will forget it. Well, doubtless there was no woman in Germany who would do it either. No such incident ever occurred. It was manufactured in one of the malicious mines in Wellington House. And as Member of Parliament Arthur Ponsby declared, if lies were only used to deceive the enemy in the game of war, it would not be worth troubling about. But as the purpose of most of these is to fan indignation and induce the flower of the country's youth to be ready to make the supreme sacrifice, it becomes a very serious matter because propaganda kills. As Ponsby's documentation and falsehood in wartime so eloquently demonstrates, lies and propaganda kill innocent people. Reported atrocities of the enemy inspire counter-atrocities by one's own forces and atrocious behavior is justified by lies about atrocious behavior allegedly done by one's opponents, which is why so many atrocities were committed by American forces taking uh, Germany, uh, working the way through France and so on. There was routinely shooting of prisoners of war out of hand because of the propaganda they had been taught and uh, justifying the saturation bombing of cities and all the rest of it. Some historians have noted that the harm caused by propaganda war always proves to be more damaging than the personal agony and destruction caused by the trench fighting, the unrestricted submarine warfare, the aerial bombardment of civilian targets, 
these created lasting physical and emotional trauma for individuals and lasting enmity between nations. But the indelible memory of atrocity stories that have taken place only in the imaginations of British propaganda agents or Hollywood filmmakers has proved to be stronger and more persistent than any facts. The power of myths over facts is the real legacy of the First War. And it has proved to be one of the most important influences of future Anglo-German and American-German relationships from both the British and German points of view and from the American point of view. The British propaganda office achieved its final victory after the war was over. The Versailles Peace Treaty, signed in 1919, sought to pin war guilt exclusively on Germany. And this made possible the extortion of ruinous reparations in the billions, which brought about the economic collapse and political collapse of Germany, which led to the Great Depression and made a Second World War inevitable. Our Lord Jesus Christ said, you will know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It's essential that we learn the truths of history to recognize the lies of propaganda. We need to study the word of God that we can be freed from deception. There's so many warnings about deception and how Satan deceives the whole world. We should be seriously kept careful. We should be skeptical about what we are taught, and especially when you see this demonizing of an enemy which has done so uh, so with such skill by the uh, Hollywood film industry in particular, but even in our school textbooks and in some of our museums as well. It's, it's absolutely shameful. So I think that uh, Richard Milton, in his best of enemies, Britain and Germany, Truth and Lies in Two World Wars, has done a tremendous service. Now, I've only focused here on what uh, he said about the First World War, uh, but I think uh, that is more than enough that we can handle in one program today. Thanks, and back to you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. And it's interesting because um, what I've been doing is, when you were speaking there, um, I was drawn to that famous quote by Gutel Schnaper, who was the mother of the first five Rothschild uh, sons. Um, and the quote is from 1849. And she said, If my sons did not want wars, there would be none. Um, and that's something that I include in my book. Now, I found it. I went through, I typed in Gutel Schnaper and I typed in the quote into webcrawler.com and it's come up with a link to an archive.org page for a film I've not heard of called In the Name of Zion. Now, archive.org can be quite good. Uh, you can find a lot of things on there that um, they haven't got round to scrubbing yet. So I'm going to include a link to this in the post for this show. I've not, been able, I've not seen the film, so I can't uh, say if it's worth seeing or not. But I'm including it because some reviewer here, Flying Pooter, who put up the Globe, uh, the Gutel Schnaper quote, has put some other quotes up that I'd like to just read out <laughs> and then get uh, Peter's comments. This is from um, Count Mensdorf, the Jewish ambassador from Austria to London in 1918. Israel won World War I. We made it, we thrived on it, we profited from it. It was our supreme revenge on Christianity. And then we've got Winston Churchill in the Times, 1919. Should Germany do business again in the next 50 years, we have led World War I in vain. And then we've got from the US Congressional Record, 67th Congress, 4th Sitting Senate Document, number 346. Full responsibility for the First World War lies squarely on the shoulders of the international Jewish bankers. They are responsible for millions of dead and dying. 
Um, there's some other ones here, but they more relate to the Second World War. So uh, I'll just go with those. There are more in there. So you might just want to look at this page and look at these quotes. Um, uh, some of them I'm familiar with, some of them I'm not. So I'm just going off this page, and that's why I'm going to include the link uh, to it in the post for our show. But I'm going to read the first one again, which... Um, I think is extremely telling based upon how um, Peter ended his presentation today. And this is Count Mensdorf, the Jewish ambassador from Austria to London in 1918. Israel won, World War I, we made it, we thrived on it, we profited from it. It was our supreme revenge on Christianity. Peter, what are your thoughts on that? That certainly ties in with my other historical research on the First and Second World War. I was a participant in the greatest missions conference uh, uh, in history, and that was in Cape Town in 2010. Now, the, uh, the Lausanne 2010 was uh, uh, exactly 100 years off the First World Missions Conference, which was Edinburgh in 1910. So the First World Missions Conference in the world was 1910 in Edinburgh, and the consensus of all the participants at this great missions conference was that present trends continuing, the world will be thoroughly evangelized, thoroughly discipled, and Protestant by, 90, by 1960, uh, which coincidentally is the year I was born. And so they saw 50 years ahead that uh, if, if the uh, expansion of the church and the civilizing of the world continued at the pace it had been, uh, in 1910, they were all convinced that, well, by 1960, the world will be thoroughly Christian. And we could see the millennium starting before the end of the 20th century. Well, we all know that didn't happen. And well, what derailed the greatest century of missions, which was the 19th century? Well, 1914. And uh, there is no doubt that the catastrophic First World War and the Second World War being uh, round two of, of the same was engendered by uh, anti-Christian elements, Freemasons, banksters, as well described, uh, anti-Christian elements uh, particularly, and the bankers, with the Rothschilds being the common denominator, not only, you, you take this conflict of interest, here there were Rothschilds running the banks in Italy, in France, in Austria, in Germany, in Britain, and in America. The one place that didn't run the banks was in Russia. And so that's why particular venom was, was uh, exerted on the Romanov family, and we've looked at the murder of the Romanovs, and, and that was a previous show dealing with, with that sense of, of tremendous hatred for the, uh, the role of Tsar Alexander in particular in 1815 at the Congress of Vienna refusing a Rothschild bank and their vindictiveness and determination to punish Russia for the fact of excluding them from controlling their finances and how well Russia did uh, financially as documented by uh, uh, by a good friend, Stephen Mitford Goodson, who was once director of the Southern Reserve Bank. He wrote the history of central banking and the enslavement of mankind. And he documents the the banker links. And in fact, it's a, a, a point stated by Stephen Mitford Goodson that uh, all the wars of the 20th centuries have been bankers' wars or bankster wars. And the Rothschilds have been the common denominator and uh, for their economic ends. Very interesting, and he proves his points excellently and shows how well Russia was doing as an empire under the Tsar without uh, usury, without interest, uh, uh, central reserve banks and so on, and uh, just how phenomenally they were growing and uh, how uh, well financed the Bolsheviks were, uh, including uh, 
Leon Trotsky or uh, Levy Bronstein, as he was uh, originally, uh, coming with massive amount of, of finances from the United States uh, to get the Cheka up and running, uh, the Red Army, and all that they did in, in murdering millions of Christians in, in Russia, what, you, what they then called the Soviet Union. So there's no doubt, uh, as I look at this, and I see the uh, how Christianity took a massive left turn downhill since 1914. So comparing the First World Mission Conference in 1910 with the major World Mission Conference in 2010, in the last 100 years, we've lost a lot of ground. Back in 1910, or should I say 1914, Christian nations dominated and ruled the world, particularly the Protestant superpowers of Britain, Germany, and America. And today, I don't think there's a single country in the world that can be called truly Christian, certainly not on the level that they were back in 1914. And there's no doubt anti-Christian, satanic synagogue of Satan, banksters, Freemasons and others have been behind uh, this catastrophic convincing Christian nations to fight one another. And yes, it, it was really a supreme revenge on Christianity when uh, they managed to persuade great Christian nations to slaughter one another by the millions. And who benefited? Well, we can see who benefited. The Soviet Union came out of the First World War. Uh, we can see how they created the situation for the League of Nations and late the United Nations. And so through these world wars, we can see how the anti-Christian elements have achieved a lot of what they wanted. Before the First World War, 64% of Europe was in church every Sunday. Before the Second World War, 42% of Europe was in church every Sunday on average. After the Second World War, it dropped down to 4 to 5% in Western Europe, church attendance. I think in the British Isles, it's somewhere around the 4% mark right now. Uh, absolutely horrific to think of the spiritual, moral impact. And of course, it's had the most catastrophic impact in terms of uh, standards of living worldwide, as we've seen a return to slavery and to human trafficking, to widow burning, and a whole lot of evils which had been wiped out uh, uh, with the advance of Christian civilization prior to 1910. But now, what are we seeing? We're seeing a regression into pre-Christian paganism. This is not progress. This is not advance. And this is not by accident. And that's the key point we've got to get from books like The Best of Enemies is understand that there have been diabolical conspirators behind the scenes who have engineered the catastrophic collapse of the British Empire and of Christian Europe and of so much of the good that was being done in the world prior to 1914. So back to you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. And before we go, can you please let the audience know where they can find your work and how they can contact you? Yes, uh, my personal email is peter at frontline.org.za, peter at frontline.org.za. And our mission uh, website is www.frontlinemissionsa.org, frontlinemissionsa.org. We're also on Facebook, social media, so you can find Peter Hammond or Frontline Fellowship. And uh, I've got our articles on this, uh, if you go onto our Frontline Mission Essay.org website, I've got the summary of this book report on Britain and Germany, Dash the Best of Enemies. Thank you so much, Peter. Wonderful having you on the show again today. Folks, you have been listening to the real story of how Britain and Germany became the best of enemies. I want to thank all of you for listening. Peter and I will be back with you at the same time next week. I'll, of course, be back with you all tomorrow. But until then, folks, have a wonderful day. And bye for now.